Hey, I'm Gem Supernova and welcome to my DIY handbook. So I've learned so many things throughout the years on my journey as a freelance creative and sometimes I just really wished I had a place where I could go to hear the experiences, the processes and the decisions of other people like me. But most importantly, I really wanted to hear the lessons and the mistakes. So that's what this is. Each episode, I'll be sharing a lesson that I've learned along the way. I'll be honest in sharing my stories of when things haven't gone right and the solutions I've worked out. I'll be joined by a host of inspiring guests who have either been on a similar journey or had the answers right away. We'll be discussing how to build a team, persistence, the power of no, evolving and so much more. Disclaimer, this podcast was recorded at the end of 2020 and the first few months of 2021. So if you hear references to last year, don't worry about it. So I guess this episode is about diversity, it's about me being a black woman and in the aftermath of Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and some of the things that I've been thinking and some of the conversations that I've been having, it's made me look back at my career at the 10 years and think about what it has meant for me being a black woman, what have situations been like for me and what would a world look like if it was more diverse. So I'm speaking to the Director of Creative Diversity at the BBC, she's the author of Diversify, The Power of Women the power of privilege. She's had a 20-year career as one of the first black women that I saw presenting on TV from MTV to T4 to Sky. She's been awarded with an OBE for her work in general. She is black excellence to me and she's got the best smile, always inspiring the next generation. And who better to talk to about diversity, about being a black woman than June Sarpong, who has spent years campaigning, writing, presenting, researching about why businesses need to be more diverse. So June, it's definitely an honour to have you as part of the podcast. Um, I remember actually um, having you on my BBC Radio 1 Extra show when we did the Saturday afternoon slot. And uh, just talking to you, I was like, wow, June, the way June's mind works, obviously your enthusiasm as well, and just for general life and and always opening the door and bringing people through and sharing your time. So yeah, this is going to be a really um, fun and interesting chat. I kind of want to go back because of a lot of the work that you do, it's kind of been like a lifelong work that you've been you've been doing, whether it's you just being you or the actual sort of, you know, um, writing the books and doing, you know, the panels and the, all, the, all the stuff that you, and your, your job now at the BBC. But I mean, I grew up in South East London, mm. um, which is like the most multicultural hotspot to me, like anywhere, you know, even in even in school, at all my schools and even up to college, there was always, you know, two of two um, from Vietnamese to Somalian to Turkish, you know, I was around so many different cultures and I kind of feel like in one way it prepared me so well, you know, to be around so many different people, but also it was quite, I guess, a sheltered upbringing, which was Mm. my mum's point because she had grown up in Tamworth as the one of the only black families. And she was like, I don't want that for my children. So what was it like for you? Where did you grow up and how diverse was your area? Yeah, mine was the same. I grew up in uh, Walthamstow uh, and, and mainly East London. And and I feel so lucky to have grown up in that environment where everybody was from all walks of life, different parts of the world, um, immigrant families like mine living side by side with a sort of uh, traditional white working class families um, and we all got along and so t- diversity and difference was something that was celebrated mm. uh, in the community that I grew up in 
Also, I was really lucky to grow up there at a time where the area was becoming newly gentrified. So there were a lot of middle class people in the area, too, who sent their kids to my school. And I think that really helped because it meant that I was around people from a different background socioeconomically as well uh, to my own. So that when I went into the industry, which is obviously predominantly full of middle class and upper middle class people, um, I never felt intimidated or other, even though perhaps I didn't belong in the traditional sense. I personally didn't feel that way because I had been around that too. And I think that was a, a definite gift for me going into this industry. I feel the same because that was exactly the sort of thing that I had. I, I lived, grew up in New Cross and you have two sides to New Cross. Yeah. You have up the hill, which is like Telegraph Hill, and you have, you know, people that had five five storey houses and they own the uh. top to the bottom. And some of their parents worked at the BBC. And then I lived on the <laughs> other side of Sainsbury's, which was kind of like, um, yeah, I guess a lot more like socioeconomically um, lower. But then when I went to Deptford Green and then you have people that are coming from the estate from across the road and then perhaps where I I had lived was more of a socioeconomically, I guess, um, you know, middle, more middle class than some of the some of the people that I was then interacting with. So it was this constant like movement of people. And I definitely think that what you said about being not intimidated and, you know, I guess, knowing how to how to how to mm-hmm. fit in in those places, whether it's with colour or with class definitely puts you in good stead and I feel like then I went to go and work at the BBC so I went straight from college straight into the BBC straight into one extra which was a black station and so everyone that I was around was mostly black there was of course white people that I worked with but they were mostly black there was my bosses were black um, women and things like that so I was like oh again it's just kind of like I just assumed that that was how the world was and it was only when I went to go and work at a major label that I was shocked and I was like, hold on a minute, where, where is everyone? It's just me. I'm in, the, in a room and I'm the only black person and I'm the only woman and we're talking about black music. And it, I couldn't understand why I felt so like, I, I couldn't verbalise maybe why I felt so uncomfortable and I didn't want to be there. And every time I get there, I feel like a, I'd be on the verge of tears Some for some, you know, something made me feel pretty off was there a kind of like defining moment for you you know maybe some of the first jobs you worked in where you had an experience similar or um well the first job I worked uh in was at Kiss FM so I was really lucky I got work experience when I was 16 um and Lorna Clark who we both know very well who's one of a our uh, senior execs at the BBC uh, was uh, head of and a black woman. Kiss at the time. So she was actually my first, yeah, black woman, wonderful black woman. Uh, so she was actually my first boss. Um, and I was lucky to work at Kiss when it was very diverse and, you know, everyone was from everywhere. And the whole point of the station was about uniting the young people of London through the power of music. So that was the sort of the, the start of my career for a very long time. So I was I was lucky again. I think it really matters where you start in terms of mm. just to set you up right for when you go into the world where you're the only one, which then becomes the norm. Um, but that was not my experience at KISS. Then when I went to MTV, very much what you're describing, uh, where, um, you know, even though it was a youth uh, channel for sure. I was the only person of colour and I think we had, well then again, no, Trevor Nelson was there as well at the time. And then we also had uh, a producer uh, uh, who was a person of colour. But other than that, that was it. 
And most people in terms of behind the camera were also from quite privileged backgrounds too. Um, and in terms of the audience, no, I never felt any sort of disconnect. I was The audience connected me with me straight away. But in terms of some of the things that happened with executives a few times, for sure. You know, there's a story I've, I've told many times where um, I, at the time, had one of the highest rated shows on the network and they did a photo shoot with all of the MTV girls, which is what we were called then. I mean, you could never get away with that now. But back then, now, you know, we're talking 20 years ago, mm -hmm. that's what we were called. And they did a photo shoot with all of uh, my co-presenters, but didn't include me. And uh, this was pre-social media, and it was amazing. The audience literally revolted wow. and started calling the network, asking what had gone on, blah, blah, blah. Turns out it wasn't even the magazine that didn't include me. The, the uh, marketing department there, for whatever reason, had decided I wasn't right for the shoot. Um, and, you know, it was heartbreaking. I was 20, 21 at the time. But the thing is, with these things, I believe, you know, when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade and you make lucrative lemonade. So anyway, <laughs> we went back, renegotiated my contract. Um, and actually, it was a turning point in my career because then I had my own campaign. And, and that is actually what led to me eventually getting my work at Channel 4 and D4. So, you know, sometimes these things actually can work out in your benefit. But yeah, it's it's tough. It's tough. And I think this is what I always try to explain to uh, people uh, in our industry is to also put themselves in, in environments where they are the only one in the room and to try that, which actually is the title of my new book, because that has been the story of my life. And you, you same for you, you understand that concept, is where they are the only one in the room and to understand what that feels like. Mm. So therefore they can, they get a, a better understanding of what it feels like for their colleagues who, who you know, don't fit in in the traditional way. Where did that resolve come from, that kind of, you know, because that could have knocked some people, you know, that could have made yeah. some people, and I'm sure many people that we maybe have started out with have left the industry for yeah. uh, overt or micro aggressions yeah. um, like yeah. that. What was that resolve that made you keep on, on pushing through? Well, um, I think a few things. I mean, I was, you know, when I was a teenager, I was hit, hit by a car and I didn't walk for a good year or so and then had rehabilitation for like another three. Um, and I think that, that that whole period for sure, um, I think changed me profoundly and, and actually changed me for the better mm. um, in terms of my outlook on life. Um, and then also, you know, I, I come from pretty strong Ghanaian women uh, and Ghanaian men. Um, and so that foundation has just meant that, you know, there's always been a kind of a, a, a resolve. And also because I learned early on, particularly as, as a black woman, not to take my value from external mm. factors, because we live in a society that does everything it can to, to not celebrate black women. Yeah. Um, so, so I always uh, knew I had to have an inner uh, self-acceptance because rejection was going to be something I faced more uh, than some of my uh, friends. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's important that we give that to all children. But I think obviously there are children who, unfortunately, because our society is not as fair as it should be, uh, who perhaps need a little bit more resilience. Yeah, that makes me think of a time actually when 
maybe during my idyllic um, childhood, as I sort of think of it, when I was about eight or nine and um, mm. I was working on the computer, my mum came over and she was like, I need to talk to you. And I was like, oh, we know what you want to talk about. And she was like, you know, you're a, you're a black woman. And I was like, yeah, I know. And she was like, you're a black woman. So that means, you know, you're going to have to work twice as hard. Yeah, you know? we all had yeah, that and, conversation. But I, was kinda, I was a little bit annoyed with her at the time. Like, what, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> why are you telling me this? Um, and she was like, it's going to be tough. You know, it's going to be hard. And there's going to be, you know, times when you are working twice as hard and you're still going to get half as half as much as your counterparts, mm. you know, and yeah. she'd be like, you know, your friend such and such, you know, you're going to have such a different um, journey experience, to her, experience yeah. to her. And yeah. that's always sort of stuck with me because I feel like she's something, something in her on that day or something she'd been building up to that moment to, to have that conversation with me and to, and wanted to make sure that it was in a way that didn't make me feel less than, but also mm. a way to, a way to prepare me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've all had it. Any kid of colour's had it. And, and, you know, in fact, my, my new book, um, uh, Power of Privilege, I talk about that. And, and obviously now we have uh, such a, a growing number of mixed-race families. So even, even parents who themselves don't have a lived experience of racism, their children, now they have children that do, mm-hmm. they are also having to have the conversation. Um, yeah, we've all had it. You were like the first black woman that I saw like in on, on TV that was presenting, you know, and I, mm. I, I just remember obviously T4, um, you know, you and Vernon <laughs> Kay and um, just being, you know, I guess in, enchanted watching and watching the way that, you, you know, you two's um, chemistry, you on you mm. on set, how you carried Love yourself. Yeah, yeah. And I just remember when there was one episode where he, I think you were laughing and joking about something and he dove on you and you both fell off the side of the sofa. I can't remember <laughs> what it was, but um, I just remember thinking, wow, they are having so much fun. Um, yeah. Did it feel, because you're obviously aware that you are, um, you know, hyper visible black woman in a space where mm-hmm. there wasn't, was that... Was there any pressure then or, you know, people like putting putting you on a pedestal maybe or expecting loads from you? Well, I mean, I never felt that. I mean, I, I felt a responsibility, of course. So, you know, things like I remember when, you know, back then, it, it's very different now, but back then um, when I started was during the sort of the era of the ladettes and anyone that's sort of under 25 won't know what that is, but there was a, a period where the girls were expected to constantly be in bikinis and drinking beer, drinking and <laughs> yeah, yeah, all of that, all you know. And I don't know, I just, I just knew the rules were not the same for mm. me. So I knew as a black woman, that was not the road for me. Not long term. There were things that I wouldn't be able to get away with that my white female counterparts would. Yeah. So I, I knew early, and I'm, I, I'm so glad that I knew early, that no, that's not the same. So don't you be sitting around in your bikini <laughs> and don't you be getting drunk and blah, blah, blah. I mean, I don't drink anyway, so that helped. Yeah. But my point was I knew I didn't have the luxury of, of, of sort of having that carefree existence. And that was fine. I I didn't want it anyway, but I just knew that wasn't for me. So I didn't feel pressure, but I definitely felt a sense of responsibility um, in that, you know. And also for many people in the country, I would be their only black friend via television. Do you see what I mean? So I also understood what that meant too. Um, And and hopefully having a 
authentic portrayal, mm-hmm. um, but also um, one that that I hope um, was also responsible. Yeah. Was it different when you went to America? Because I, I'm, I'm definitely intrigued about the black experience um, in America and being African-American, mm. being, you know, knowing your heritage is from Africa, being Caribbean mm. and or being mm. in America. What was it like when you went there as a British Ghanaian woman? Yeah, well, I think it's a very different experience in the sense that uh, I think what we do better in the UK um, is the integration piece in terms of um, how we live and the fact that, you know, we have friends from different walks of life and interracial marriage is the the highest, I think, anywhere in the world here, actually. Um, So there are things that we do better, but what we don't do well is the opportunity piece mm. um, because we we try so hard to avoid conversations around race and obviously class uh, is the sort of the defining factor here. But obviously, so many people of color tend to come from uh, 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 lower income backgrounds because of immigration. So, what happens is the the, the stark problems. We, we don't address. And as a result of not addressing them, we almost act as if everything is okay and, it's, and, and, and when it isn't. And, but what America has is everything is seen through the prism of race. But even though they have serious issues, because don't forget, slavery took place on their shores. Mm. Slave owners and um, the ancestors of slaves are living side by side. You know, at the end of the day, the, the UK did its stuff in the territories. You, there was something about not bringing it home. And, and, out of and, sight, and, out of mind, yeah. Well, and we still know the impact, so it's not in any way to dilute that. But my point is, in America, it's in your face every day because the two are living side by side. And so everything is seen through the prism of race. But because of the American dream, the opportunity piece is way more advanced than us. And because they have had movements to fight for that opportunity piece because of the civil rights movement and obviously because of the emancipation movement and so on and so on. So it's very rare that you'll have a big organization in America that doesn't have a senior black executive or whatever. You, it'd be hard, you'd be hard for you to get away with that, even though they still have a long way to go. Whereas here, it's absolutely normal. It's rare if you do have one. Mm. Um, and I, so what I would say is what they do better is the opportunity piece, but what we do better is the integration bit. Yeah, yeah. That actually makes me think about, yeah, the, the opportunity side of things, because I actually thought about, and, and I think that part of this podcast is about reflection. And in the last 12 months, we've had a lot of reflecting oh, to do God, on yeah. top of what mm. it means to live in a pandemic, but what it means to be mm. a black person as well. And it made mm. me think that it was very apparent to me at the beginning of my journey as a broadcaster that I would have to start on a black station, you know, 10 years ago, that was mm. the where, where you had to start. And you would have to say to be considered by a more mainstream station, um, you would have to almost transcend race in a way that your your broadcasting skills or you became a household name within that and then you would be yeah. able to make the move over. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, that definitely is something that, something that I've been kind of thinking about. And I was talking to a friend recently and um, this was like last, last summer, we went, for, we went for a drink and um, I was saying, you know, it's amazing that um, One Extra has a black head of station. 
and they were like you know oh and they were like and I was like you know we've never had we've never had that and they were like really I was like yeah the station's been going for x amount of years we never had that it's amazing and they were like well do you you know this is it's a white a white person a white male and they were like well do you think that maybe there just wasn't anyone that was qualified for the job 10 years ago and I was was, but it was like I was kind of almost shocked but that was what he genuinely believed that people would only become experienced enough to do those roles now where would he where would he have got that from oh because that is his experience Mm. his experience you know when you are, are fortunate enough to um uh uh, live in a society that uh, is designed with you in mind, mm. then it is about that then, isn't it? So there aren't other factors as to why you wouldn't get a job. Yeah. The, the, fa- the factor is, can you do the job? That's it. And, mm. you know, are you in the right place to be able to, to, to get the job, to access the job? Whereas when you come from an underrepresented group or a group that's discriminated against, there are other factors. The factors are not just can you do the job. The factors are does your face fit? The Mm. factors are do you know the right people? The factors are is somebody quote unquote willing to take a a risk because by default you're seen as a risk even if you're not. Um, So I can totally understand why he would say that because that is his experience. Yeah. But that's certainly not the experience of um, diverse talent. No, definitely not. Do you think that you have, I mean, I feel like I've had to do a lot of unlearning and kind of like, we we all have to do unlearning, but like when you think about the patriarchy and and systemic racism, Mm -hmm. there can Mm -hmm. sometimes be a way of thinking that, you know, let's say, you know, you're, you're lauded as the, the first black person to do this, the first black person in this position, the first black person to do this, that it's seen as a celebration. So sometimes it's like you can revel in that tokenism because it's like, well, I'm the, I'm, the, I'm the only black person here. But then when you kind of start to look at deeper sort of, you know, that's quite, I guess, as you grow and mature and you start to look deeper under the surface of it, it's like, well, you were the only one that was let through. Mm-hmm. kind of at that time did you mm-hmm. have to do sort of I guess any any unlearning because like for for me now it's like I don't want I never want to be the only black person yeah in any situation yeah well um well I I, I never reveled in the tokenism <laughs> yeah maybe that makes it sound more evil than it is but you know being proud to be yeah I made it through you know no 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 because mm. I never saw it that way because yeah. I mean you know well all well and good one but one doesn't necessarily change things per of course se. yeah I, I, and so so no I never felt that way I felt more like um where possible I would want to support and nurture as much talent possible to come through who wouldn't have the opportunity without me putting in a word yeah. um and I still see that as my responsibility if if I can you know you can't do it all the time but where you can you will but I always actually thought it was a loss to the industry. Mm. Just even looking at it from a logical perspective, think of all of the great shows that haven't been made, the formats that haven't been created, the stories that haven't been told because people haven't been given the opportunity they deserve. So to me, it was actually a loss to the industry. So I saw it as doing the industry a favour in bringing in uh, this talent that they wouldn't know how to find themselves. Um, So, well, also I think the the thing that sometimes happens, which is a real shame when, when you are one of the only few, 
there's a, a, a mm-hmm. an insecurity that can come with that where people feel that they then have to sort of avoid being around other people of color or somehow <laughs> it'll be obvious that you yeah, are yeah. of color if you're with somebody else, you know what I mean? And I, I don't know why, I, I re- and I, yeah. I've wondered why, but I never felt that. Like, I never felt that. Like, I, I, for me, mm-hmm. I was proud to be black. I love being black and it's a part of my identity just as much as being British is. The, to me, the two go side by side. Um, and... And anywhere I am, well, yeah, part of the yeah. reason I'm also there is because I bring something else. You know, you, you don't need me to be a carbon copy of what you've already got. You you, you need me yeah. to bring me because you don't have that. So I yeah, I, I, and I and I think and I think that's probably down to my family and that they were very proud of who they were, and I think that seeped through to us. And also, as I said, before I could develop. The, the 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 kind of doubt and and doubt in general as in imposter syndrome we all have that but I mean doubt where I would have an issue with my identity before that could set in I'd already been in an environment where my identity mm. was celebrated and validated and also I spent a lot of my childhood going back and forth to Ghana so I was in places where you saw black judges and black lawyers and blah blah blah, blah. so again I think that helped to shape um, my identity going forward. You just reminded me of this bit of a book that I've been reading. It's called Luster. Oh, what is that? Yeah, it's really good. It's about this. It's kind of like a, I guess, a kind of like weird sort of like psycho lusty thriller I guess it's called yeah and it's like one of the girls she's like a young black girl and she's and she's at work and um another black girl starts working at her work she works in a publishing house and um suddenly it's a little bit like they kind of have a little like you know eye showdown <laughs> across the office and they they want to be friends with each other yeah. but there is something that kind of keeps them apart yeah. and on the her last day outside they actually have a conversation and it's kind of what you said the other girl was like you kind of represented all of the black that I didn't want to be you know, so yes, I am going to shuck and jive my way to the top. It was like this kind of weird, mm. like they'd had all this tension and actually they, they, they had just wanted to be friends. Friends, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a shame. But that is yeah. real. It's a real thing, that. Definitely. Yeah. Did the nuances change when you went from, I guess, youth TV into into politics? Because I can imagine even though, you know, working in the media, it is still overwhelmingly white, but it is, I guess, in some aspects quite liberal mm. um so when you go into somewhere like politics how does how does those nuances change well I never really went into politics I was just very um passionate about sort of campaigning which obviously I can't do anymore at the BBC um but um I was never in politics I was yeah. on the peripheries um but I think I, well, I don't think our industry is as liberal as it likes to give itself credit for mm. um uh, you know I think often our industry gives itself credit for things that it's not actually doing um, yeah. and is often quick to call out other industries and, you know, but when you drill beneath the surface, it's like, hey, there's not that much sort of difference if we're just looking at data. Um, but I think the thing that definitely happened to me uh, was, um, and still does, uh, is sort of being undermined and second-guessed and where people think because I didn't go to university and because I come from uh, a working-class background that somehow 
that means that I'm not intelligent um, and that I'm a woman. So I've always had that second guessing, that undermining. And also the funny thing is, you know, when you go into a new environment and, and especially if people don't know me, like if they know me and my work, then that helps, you know, being a, a sort of known person has benefits that come along with that. But if somebody doesn't, then there is that first 10 minutes where you're like, okay, we need to set the scene here. So yeah, whatever you're thinking, no, this isn't it. <laughs> so like, so, so, but, and that gets a bit tiring, but, course, but I, yeah. but I know I have to do it. Otherwise, yeah, people won't take you seriously. Cause I guess it's one thing to be in the room, isn't it? It's another thing. It's one thing to be in the room. It's another thing to be at the table. It's another thing to have authority. Yeah. Oh, just have a voice even yeah yeah Mm -hmm. what made you want to write your book um the first book diversify was there a turning point for you was it something like a lifelong thing well it was an actual incident so um when I was living in America um I was filming in Las Vegas and this young guy appeared on set who had um some tattoos and you know And I made up in my mind all these sort of ideas about who I thought he was. And, you know, I grew, like I said, I grew up in a council estate. I grew up in East London. So it wasn't as if I hadn't any experience with somebody like him, but I didn't have experience with somebody like him in that context. Mm -hmm. And even though I had been campaigning for our industry to be much more diverse, when the status quo was challenged, even I had to adjust And I remember, Jam, sitting there thinking, my God, if I'm feeling this way about him, what hope has that kid got? Because every time he goes into a room, that is the perception that people will have of him. And I could see him sort of going out of his way to seem helpful and non-threatening and all of that. And I just thought, my goodness, wow, this we have a lot of work to do. And, you know, I, I got talking to him and he was really excited about the, uh, the prospect. He was, he was a, assisting our sound engineer on the, show, on the show. And, you know, he was excited about the prospect of a career working in sound and the industry. And he was a lovely, lovely kid. And I just thought, wow, how do I help to facilitate a conversation that will make this guy's life that much easier? Because if me, who knows better who's experienced the very thing I'm doing myself. If, if I'm doing it, then yeah, what hope has he got? And so that was for me what, and that's why I decided to, to not be, um, to be quite no holds barred in how I approached it, but also to come at it from a position of understanding what it is that makes us feel disconnected as people. Um, and, and yeah, that was, I don't know, four or five years ago and it's, and it's been a one hell of a ride. So yeah, it's, it's amazing to be able to help sort of facilitate these questions and make people look at things in, in ways that perhaps they had never viewed before. So yeah, it's great. And that takes the self-awareness because it is so often that we think, well, I'm, I'm not this or I'm not that. I wouldn't yeah. think this and I wouldn't think yeah. that. I had a similar thing, well, twice actually. Mm. One was when I had a, had a car crash. I didn't walk for, oh, for three bless months. You. And oh, sort of bless hearing you, the parallels, there's quite yeah. a lot of parallels. Um, yeah. But I then, you know, 
I then obviously during that period it was I had I was in a wheelchair and going into work and going into clubs still to DJ and I was like wow this is such an inaccessible world and it hadn't been something that I had thought of before I hadn't thought you know about the nightclubs that I was throwing parties in or the you know the events that I was doing and how how accessible those places were it wasn't just something that would have would have crossed my mind until I was in that position and that kind of scared me in the fact that I had never had never had taken the time to think about someone else's experience. And another time was um, I'd been running this um, this um, women in music group and uh, we called it. Yeah, it was called Flex. We'd been running it for about a year and a half and it was only a year and a half into that we thought um, someone had asked us, is it open to people that identify as women as well? Mm. And we were like, yeah, of course. They were like, well, would you mind changing the women on your flyers to have an X in? And we were like, oh, yeah. Oh, whoa, yeah, we have no problem doing that. But it just hadn't been something that was at the front of our mind because it wasn't something yeah, that directly so affected you. us. Yeah, 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 totally. And, and that's the thing. It's taking that self-awareness and not being resistant to it, isn't it? It's, yeah. like, it's not being like, oh, well, you know, and getting defensive about it. So when you, you know, because you not just wrote the book, but you also went into, you know, you did you went into businesses and, and, and shared some of the data and stuff from the book and, the be- and better practices going forward. Did mm. you get much resistance? Well, you know what's so funny? So much has changed in, in, in quite a short period yeah. of time. Yeah. So when I first started it, it was very much the argument was the why this was good. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we're definitely beyond the why. Um, and obviously uh, George Floyd and, and everything that's happened subsequently um, has meant that basically we're beyond the why and we're at the how. And I think for those of us that are kind of in the uh, middle of this, and then this, this is, you know, yourself included, we have to make sure that the how is sustainable so that what you have is a, an ecosystem that creates a sort of a generation of talent that's ongoing and that there are opportunities that are ongoing as opposed to this being just like a moment and, you know, you get a few people in and then that's it. So, um and what I'm loving is I'm, you know, because the great thing is because of the work that I've done and do, uh, companies across the board come to me. So it's not just our industry. So I'm able to see what's going on around the country and, and in, in some parts of the world too. And this is something that everybody is grappling with because, you know, if you're in business, you realise the, the benefits, you realise the financial benefits. Yeah, you know. At the bottom line, but, yeah. Yeah, before we even get to everything else. Um, so it's an interesting time. Yeah. Mm. Is there sort of ways in which, like, because I'm, I'm, you know, I was having a conversation with a, with a younger artist um, recently and, you know, young black woman, young black musician. And um, we somehow got into the conversation around who our team was, you know, who, who we work with. And I was like, yeah, my, my team is, is overwhelmingly white. You know, from my manager to my booking agent, she was like, yeah, same. And I was like, you know, I, and then we sort of had a verbally out, outwardly thinking. And I was like, you know, and it's, it can be hard. But for me, it's like sometimes it's like, well, they're overwhelmingly women. You know, it's kind of like trying to find a balance because it, it can't. It's really hard to get to that place, I guess, of of utopia. But there is little things that we can do. So whether I'm going to be on a photo shoot and I want to make sure that the photographer is, is a, or share that share a cover moment with a photographer of colour mm-hmm. or ways that I can inject diversity 
around me. Yeah. Do you have any sort of ways in which for you personally that you try and do something like that? Well, and also I think it's a it's a process to realise mm. that you know that we've had a very unlevel playing field. So you know, these positions are not going to be uh, assumed overnight. It's going to take time to get the 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 levels and the numbers and those with the experience and so so and no one is saying we're a place where you say oh I don't want people for no what we want is we want diverse teams we want mm-hmm. everybody um so you know in terms of the stuff that I've d- do or done you know very early on in my career um <laughs> for selfish reasons as well um I made sure in all my contracts that I had my hair and makeup people uh wherever I went and and you know they, they my makeup artist is actually a friend of mine from school um and my uh hairdresser wonderful uh fabulous black woman um and so you know they were on everything so every so then when angelina jolie came in whatever that was the team doing her makeup on the show so so you know so that was you know things there and then again with photographers asking stylists you know where you could sort of make a difference and then obviously now in in my new job i get to do it on a much bigger scale um which is looking at particularly talent behind the camera where we've been very very slow um so yeah i think it's important to be able to get people through the door but we are looking for diverse teams not mm. homogenous teams yes. so we're not going the opposite way yeah. to to what's been done up until now yeah because that's what i've been thinking a lot about is like diversity doesn't just mean no diversity means a range of a whole a whole range of things yeah exactly yeah Mm -hmm. with all the work that you've been doing and kind of you know how much of of yourself that you've given um to making the world a more diverse place how do you have self-care because I was talking to my mom the other day and she works in education and Mm. she's kind of had to get a little bit like you know, quite like, no, this is not cool. This is not cool. Pick, pulling up people constantly, um, whether it's about reforming the curriculum or whether it's, you know, the conversations that I had around her about diversity without talking to her, you know, yeah. um, she's tired. Yeah. And it's tiring. So how do you, you know, I guess not run yourself down and look after yourself as well? Um, well, in terms of self-care, I mean, I'm, I'm quite good in, in having a balance, you know, and sort of, tuning out when I need to but also I think just gratitude Mm. I think you know gratitude over the little things and also I think it's really important about validation and not not needing that as what defines you you know don't define yourself by your job particularly if you're a black person and particularly a black woman good luck with that because it's such a precarious in our industry, different industries, but in our industries in particular, where everything, you're going to be coming up constantly up against rejection. And if you use that as how you value yourself, good luck, you're done, you're, you've finished. So you have to make sure that the way you value yourself is beyond that. And that's then what you take into the process. And if someone accepts it, great. If someone doesn't, no problem. There'll be somebody else who does. Yeah. And I think that, that, that that's been really important for me. And, and, and really, you know, grateful for the little things, you know, just the miracle of being alive, healthy. You know, those things 
I, I don't take for granted. Yeah, and also there's always another option. Like the other thing as well, and particularly in our industry, we sort of, we somehow brainwash people into believing that this is all there is. Oh, God, yeah. There is a <laughs> massive world outside of our industry that needs the skills that we develop within our industry. You know, you're a communicator. There are so many jobs that need that kind of communication where people in those jobs don't know how to communicate the way we do that someone's willing to pay more for. And I think being open to all possibilities and not rigidly stuck to it having to be one way. Uh, you know, when I was young, the ideal thing was, oh, I want to be able to do a Saturday night, you know, shiny floor TV show. Back then, for all sorts of systemic reasons, that wasn't necessarily available for me in the same way it was available for some of my uh, colleagues. Mm -hmm. But the wonderful thing was it meant that I was able to develop a whole different side of my career, which is what's got me to where I am now. So had I just stuck with, oh my God, if I don't get this, that's it. There's no way I'd be doing what I'm doing now. I had to take a bit of a detour and it yeah. was fine in the end. So, that, that, so I would say um, be open to all possibilities and all opportunities. That's great advice there. I love that. And mm. it came around so naturally. You didn't even need to ask for advice because everything that you say, June, <laughs> is just pure gems. So you mentioned we've been at the why. You know, we've been at the why of, of why why is there, why do we need more diversity? And now yeah. we're at the how. So I guess my last question would be, what are some of the actions that we can take to help us get past the how? Oh, yeah, great question. Um, well, I think the first thing is what, what I always say to those that are in positions of leadership um, is to look at people with fresh eyes. Often you've got the talent within your midst. You just haven't seen them in a certain way. Um, so look at people with fresh eyes, um, nurture and develop diverse talent uh, and know that the opportunities haven't been available for them in the same way. So they're not necessarily going to have all the same skills as someone who's been given many opportunities. It's better for everybody. And it's also much more fun. So <laughs> for that alone, it's worth doing it. <laughs> Definitely. Well, June, thank you so much. Thank you for opening the door and holding it open. And thank you for all that you're doing. You know, your voice is so important, it's so needed. And I know what it feels like, you know, when you're on that journey and you're like, is it worth it? Do people realise somehow it all comes full circle? You know, I know for myself, you know, in my own career, I had like a good three or four years where I was kind of in the wilderness. Mm. And, and when you're in that, you're like, oh. But actually, when I look at it now... Thank God, because there yeah. were so many other things that I was able to do and develop that has served me well on this part of the journey. So, yeah. Thank you so much, June. You're a legend. Oh, bless <laughs> you. I 
think I'm actually speechless after talking to June Sarpong, the actual June Sarpong, the woman that I watched on television throughout my youth. I think just talking to her, her enthusiasm, her directness, her her resolve, her resilience, I find it obviously so inspiring. And one of the points that she made that I've taken away is about validation and not thinking of the rejection that you may face um, if you are from a minority background um, in any sense and feeling that rejection is what validates you and knowing you know in yourself who you are what you represent and why those companies need you or why those businesses need you you are needed we are needed I am needed and she has that she walks in a room and she's like I'm not going to give you what you want I'm going to give you what you need and I thought that's really really important and even when she was talking about you know she had wanted to have a Saturday night primetime TV show and for her in her career that wasn't available to her it wasn't an opportunity that was afforded to her but it led her on a path of us being able to do this call because of the amount of work that she has been doing to make the world a more diverse place. So I can't wait to see what the next 10 years brings. I think that, like I said at the end of the conversation with June, she not only kicked down the door, she held it open for so many of us to come through. And I hope that I can do the same. Thanks for being here for this episode of the DIY Handbook. I've been Jam Supernova. And if you like what you heard, then just let me know. Leave a review, talk to me on socials, and please, please subscribe because there's more great information, stories, and advice to come in future episodes. This podcast was created by me, Jam Supernova. Production from Amy Bennett. Music and audio production from Sam Interface. <laughs>